Hello, and welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast. Either once again, or for the first time, welcome. This is actually a turning point episode in the podcast because we are drawing to a close of our discussion of Homer's Iliad. Today I want to focus on the all-important last book, book 24, which is anything but just a coda or add-on. It is, in a very real way, the most important book in the whole Iliad. And I hope it will be clear why I say that as we go along. Next week, we begin, as I let on last time, a new chapter, a new author, John Milton. And next week, I will talk in a general way about Milton, his work, and both the public political background and the private personal background that is really necessary to understand Milton's work. It may seem otherwise because what is Paradise Lost, a retelling of the Bible, what does that have to do with Milton's involvement in the English Civil War, in his relationship with his three successive wives, but actually those things are embedded in a thematic way in Paradise Lost, and it's impossible to understand Paradise Lost in depth without knowing at least a little. Plus, it's fascinating. So we will go there next time, but today I want to use all available minutes going back and talking about the ending of the Iliad, which is extraordinary, unlike that of any other heroic epic that I'm aware of. We end where, in fact, the Iliad very well might have ended with Book 22. We left off last time with Book 22, The Death of Hector. The Iliad could have ended there, and when we talked about Virgil's Aeneid, the final event of the Aeneid on the very last two pages is indeed the death of the noble but doomed enemy Turnus, and that's it. Poem closes. The Iliad goes on for two more books, of which one really is a sort of addendum. Book 23 is simply an elaborate description of the funeral games given in honor of Pat Patroclus at his funeral. And we will pass over that very quickly. But what is utterly unique and unexpected is Book 24. In Book 22, we had reached the actual death of Hector last time, and the only thing that follows that on the final two to three pages of Book 22 is an account of the only person who had not witnessed that as an eyewitness. Everybody else with an intensity of agony that is excruciating if you imagine this. This noble man, beloved of his city, the one hope of his city, the entire city of Troy, 
is watching from the walls as he goes down, including his own mother and father. The only one missing is Andromache, his wife. Where is she? Again, the almost unbearable poignance of some of these images in Homer. This epic is full of brutal violence, but it never neglects the human element of it. Where is Andromache? She is home fixing a bath for a husband that we know will never need it, except perhaps to bathe a corpse. And that's a long way away yet at this point. But she hears, she hears a huge anguished shout from the ramparts, the entire city, and she knows what it must be. It can't be anything else. And she races to the towers, confirms her worst fears, and faints, understandably. When she recovers, she ends Book 22 with a speech, yes, concerning her own future fate, but mostly concerned with that of her son, Astyanax. We know that Astyanax, along with the other male children, when Troy is taken, will be hurled from the walls and killed, because in a culture like this, with blood feuds and the demand of vengeance embedded in the heroic code, they do not dare let young children grow up to manhood to take revenge. This is not the only culture like that. I just got done watching yesterday the new film, The Northman, based on the original legend in a Danish historian that gave rise to the plot of Shakespeare's Hamlet, and I'm going to be talking about that in the next newsletter in celebration of Shakespeare's birthday, which is today. Happy birthday, Shakespeare, April 23rd, 1564, to April 23rd, 1616. But back at the Iliad and Astyanax, Andromache is even thinking of something before that final killing off of children. You do not dare let those kids grow up because that is exactly what happens in the story of the Northman. The young boy who is the Hamlet figure watches his father be murdered and grows up as a Viking berserker to take one of the more bloody revenges in the history of film. Uh, it is a very violent film, though it's an artistic one. But even before that, as I say, she mourns what will happen as the boy is growing up, as she thinks. She says, even if he escapes the wrenching horrors of war against the Argives, pain and labor will plague him all his days to come. Strangers will mark his lands off, stealing his estates. The day that orphans a youngster cuts him off from friends. 
and he hangs his head low, humiliated in every way, cheeks stained with tears, and pressed by hunger, he goes up to his father's old companions, tugging at one man's cloak, another's tunic, and some will pity him, true, and one will give him a little cup to drink, enough to wet his lips, but not quench his thirst. But then, some bully, with both his parents living, beats him from the banquet, fists and abuses flying. You, get out, you've got no father feasting with us here. In this competitive male culture, that's what happens. When you don't have a father, when you don't have even more preferable, an entire male clan to protect you and go to bat for you. This kind of society is brutal in many ways, some of them not immediately obvious like that. We will, as I say, pass over Book 23 quickly. It is Funeral Games, the entire book of it, in honor of Patroclus, and it consists of competitive sporting events, we should say, and the master of ceremonies is Achilles himself, and we don't need to go into the particular contests, even though they resemble those of the Phaeacian episode of the Odyssey on the one hand, and very much resemble the later Olympics on the other. This is the competitive culture where the Olympics came from. But it also helps to integrate Achilles, who has been entirely solitary, cut off from his own people for a long, long time. And this begins the integration back into his own society. He conducts the ceremonies, gives out the prizes, and at the opening of Book 24, the day is over, and Achilles goes to sleep except that he can't sleep. He keeps grieving for Patroclus. There is no closure. The wound is still fresh and bleeding. And he's insomniac. And again, the wonderful human eye of Homer we have all had a sleepless night of this sort. He turns and twisted side by side, recalling Patroclus, all these memories. The memories flooded over him, live tears flowing, and now he'd lie on his side, now flat on his back, now face down again. We've all done that. No position works. You try and try, and finally you do what he does, give up. At last he'd leap to his feet and wander in anguish down to the surf, though most of us probably would not let off steam in the way that he does by going to his chariot, which still has Hector's dead body lashed to it, and drags that three times around just to make himself feel better. Self-therapy, Achilles style. And the gods are watching. We move suddenly up to Mount Olympus and we get another debate that is really an argument among the gods. And it is, as usual, pro and con. 
Apollo is angry at Achilles. This guy has gone too far. He's gotten too big for his britches. He is, let a man beware, or great and glorious as he is, we mighty gods will wheel on him in anger. And what they are particularly angry about is the treatment of Hector, who is a great man, though fallen. Hera defends Achilles. Finally, Zeus intervenes and says, all right, here's the plan. And he is going to not allow the deities to steal the body as they wish, but instead he is going to send Iris, one of the two messenger deities, the rainbow personified, down on a, a double mission. <clears throat> First to Thetis as a kind of relay race, Iris to Thetis, Achilles' mother, Thetis to Achilles, to order Achilles to ransom the body, give it up, literally. Then a second mission to Priam in Troy, saying, go, collect your son's body, and you will have a guide who will turn out to be the other messenger of the gods, Hermes, who doubles here as a native guide, and down Iris goes to do this. As she does, we get a look, and it turns out to be by far the most elaborate look, although it's really a cameo, but it's still a more elaborate look at the character of Priam and Hecuba, the aged king and queen that we have had so far in the Iliad. Priam comes out on his porch and sees gawkers, people hanging around. These are like the people who slow down and cause a traffic jam in order to look at the accident by the side of the road, just waiting for a little bit of gossip on the palace stairs. And he goes off after them, reminding me of somebody like an irascible King Lear in Shakespeare. He herded them off with his staff. They fled before the old man's fury. He gave them a tongue lashing, sent them packing. Get out, you good-for-nothings, public disgraces. Haven't you got enough to wail about at home without coming here to add to all my griefs? And then he just can't stop. Even his own sons. Get to your work, my vicious sons, my humiliations. If only you'd all been killed at the fast ships instead of my dear Hector. But I, dear God, my life so cursed by fate, I fathered hero sons in the wide realm of Troy, and now not a single one is left, I tell you. Which is actually not quite true, but we get the idea. Okay, this is an ordinary tough old bird. Which leads us to his wife, Hecuba, who, after he has gotten the message from the gods that he's going to collect the body, he goes and announces this to his wife, and basically she says, are you crazy? Because she doesn't know. He hasn't told her about the protection and might not believe it if she were told. Where have your senses gone? She says, you have a heart of iron, a phrase that gets repeated. It's an oral formula phrase. 
And then she gets to thinking about Achilles, because that's where Priam is headed, and adds on to that, oh, would to God that I could sink my teeth in his liver, eat him raw. That would avenge what he has done to Hector. Which is, of course, an exact duplicate of the line that Achilles used uh, in Book 22, speaking to Hector. But, yeah, it takes a tough woman to live with the ordinary Priam, but She's up for it. And off he goes, almost alone, in the middle of the night. This old man, who, very much like King Lear, is extremely old. And off by himself with a wagon to bring the body back, and one equally old man to drive the wagon. Two old men. This is the march of the AARP, the retirement agency. And off they go in the night. A daring thing to do, even if you've got the gods okay. They take a rest, realistic details right and left in this book. They stop to take a rest by one of the landmarks on the Trojan Plain, the great tomb of Ilos. Students will occasionally ask me, sometimes it takes a good while for the question to break in on them, why it's called the Iliad. There's no character in the present narrative that it's named after, which is the usual way, like the Odyssey being named after Odysseus and the Aeneid after Aeneas. But it's the ancestor. Ilos is one of the family line of the royal family of Troy. And that brings in the theme, which echoes and echoes in a very, again, Shakespearean way of fathers and sons. Here is a forefather. Up now comes Hermes, but as usual with the gods in disguise. Disguised as what? disguised as an aide-de-camp of Achilles, which at first, understandably, terrifies Priam. Not only do you meet the enemy, but you meet a Myrmidon, one of Achilles' army. But there's a reason for this particular disguise. And the disguised Hermes goes on to say, oh, I would never hurt you and what's more, I'd beat off any man who'd do you harm. Why? You remind me of my father to the life. Fathers and sons, and the bond of fathers and sons. And off they go into the Achaean camp, into the Myrmidon part of it, through the gates, which a little bit of superhero stuff, it takes three men to open and close these gates. But Achilles could do it, of course, by himself. He's the only one. And anyway, in they come into the tent, the very tent of Achilles. And Priam knows that he has to seize the moment because after all, he is the enemy king walking into the camp. 
and it could be all over for him in five minutes. However, he counts on and gets the element of surprise. Everyone is so absolutely stunned. The middle of the night in your own camp, and who walks in? The enemy king? And they can't believe their eyes. They're paralyzed for a moment. He needs to seize that moment. He knows that, and he does. Achilles marveled, beholding majestic Priam. His men marveled, too, trading startled glances. And Priam kneels in the attitude of supplication at Achilles' feet and says the following speech. Remember your own father, great godlike Achilles, old as I am, past the threshold of deadly old age. No doubt the countrymen round about him plague him now, with no one there to defend him, beat away disaster. No one, but at least he hears you're still alive, and his old heart rejoices. But I, dear God, my life, so cursed by fate, I fathered hero sons in the wide realm of Troy, and not a single one is left, I tell you. Fifty sons I had when the sons of Achaia came, nineteen born to me from a single mother's womb. We hope that's a bit of poetic license. We hope for Hecuba's sake, at any rate. But at any rate, he goes on and ends his speech with what to me are among the most terrible lines in all of the history of literature. Revere the gods, Achilles. Pity me in my own right. Remember your own father. I deserve more pity. I endure what no one on earth has ever done before. I put to my lips the hands of the man who killed my son. The room is dead silent, and it works. These words stirred within Achilles a deep desire to grieve for his own father. And what you get out of this is another cinematic picture, and overpowered by memory, both men gave way to grief. Priam wept freely for man-killing Hector, Achilles wept now for his father, now for Patroclus once again, and their sobbing rose and fell throughout the house. It is dead silent, except for the sound of two men weeping together with grief. And suddenly, Achilles begins speaking in a way that indicates that in some mysterious way he has been inwardly transformed. That is why I say the book 24 is the most important book of the entire epic because it takes the whole epic to get to this moment and this is the moment in which Achilles reaches his true 
greatness. Not out of his warrior prowess, but out of a humanity that he has lacked before this. And that only irrevocable grief can have brought out of him. He pities this old man. Poor man, how much you've borne pain to break the spirit. What daring brought you down to the ships all alone to face the glance of the man who killed your sons, so many fine, brave boys. You have a heart of iron. So many fine, brave boys. Not exactly how Achilles was talking not that long ago to a dying Hector. Then he goes on to make a speech. This man is not normally a speech maker, but again, something unexpected is coming out of Achilles. This speech, a very famous speech for a very good reason. This speech, you could say, is the philosophy of life that stands behind the entire Iliad. What good, he says to Priam, what good's to be won from tears that chill the spirit? So the immortals spun our lives that we, we wretched men, live on to bear such torments. The gods live free of sorrows. There are two great jars that stand on the floor of Zeus's halls and hold his gifts. Our memories one, the other blessings. When Zeus, who loves the lightning, mixes gifts for a man, now he meets with misfortune, now good times in turn. The parable of the two jars of Zeus. What is the meaning of life? There are two jars in Zeus's halls, one good fortune, one bad fortune. Zeus gets out of bed in the morning and reaches for a jar, and that's what you get. It's random, it's, there's no meaning to it, it's what you get. There is no meaning beyond that except what you make by your own courage and aspiration and also by your own endurance. And he goes on to end his speech saying that he will grant the return of the body and then goes on to more or less prove that he should never become a therapist in an alternative career. Goes on to say to, to Priam, you must bear up now enough of endless tears, pain that breaks the spirit. Grief for your son will do no good at all. You'll never bring him back to life. Sooner you must suffer something worse, which I'm sure cheers Priam up immensely. But whatever. We've had this moving male bonding moment and then Homer, the artist, steps in and counterbalances that very artistically with a little bit of practical reason, reason and realism. First, Priam pushes a little bit too hard and Achilles bristles. We are instantly reminded, okay, it's still the same 
short-tempered guy here. He hasn't really changed, though he does have a hugely new humanity about him. But he's still proud and headstrong. And he says, don't anger me now. This is my choice. You wait. And then he orders people to prepare the body and another little bit of practical down-to-earth real realism, this time on the part of Achilles himself, saying, be sure to cover the body with a shroud. Why? Because I know Priam, the guy with the heart of iron, and I know that he's as temperamental as I am, and if he sees those wounds, he might fly off the handle, and there would go our moment of reconciliation. Nonetheless, he not only returns the body, and you could say, well, he's been ordered to do that, and he has, but he was not ordered to do it with those speeches of compassion. That is what he is capable of. And in those moments, he has stepped outside the heroic code, detached from it, to see something wider and more universally human, brought on by the inevitability of death, the human condition, that is unlike the rest of the heroes. And that is his greatness, and that is the importance of Book 24. Without that, it would not be what it is. There is in this culture that we have perhaps been a little impatient with, this heroic code of violence that just seems inhuman to us, and it is inhuman. But he steps outside that into a more universal humanity, Therefore, even though it, he is the only one who achieves that, he achieves it for the entire audience that are made aware there's something beyond all of this competing and fighting and blood feuds and reputation and so forth and so on. How has that happened? What changed him? He was a mad dog even while he was gloating over the dead body of Hector. He was still just a beast foaming at the mouth. And this has changed him and changed him suddenly. One thing you can say, the reason this book begins with his memories of Patroclus, he's gotten his revenge. He got it. Maybe it felt good, but it didn't bring Patroclus back. And it won't, baby. It won't do that. And that brings him up against his own vulnerability, which is not the vulnerability of death. It's the vulnerability of grief for someone you love. And that is a great thing. Despite all of the hideous violence of the Iliad, it's why, in my opinion, it belongs 
in the great classics. And the rest of Book 24 is a slow and dignified closure. The body is brought back and we end the Iliad with the body coming through the gates and the speeches of three women mourning for Hector. Two of them, inevitable and understandable. First, his wife, Andromache. Second, Hector, the queen, appropriate. The third and last, a bit of a surprise, Helen. Andromache says what a loving wife might say and goes a little bit further to a moment where you realize the disjunction between the masculine heroic and the female perspectives here. She says, oh, speaking to Hector, for you never died in bed and stretched your arms to me or said some last word from the heart I can remember always weeping for you through all my nights and days. And not to be unkind to a very good woman, but that's from a heroic point of view, a chick flick moment. That's what a woman would want, dying in bed, stretching your arms and saying something loving that is not a warrior's death. It's very sad and it indicates, in one of many ways, it indicates the limitations of this type of heroic culture, but there it is. Helen makes a speech, which is the final speech of the Iliad. Speaking of Hector, we have known this in a way, but it's more explicit here, as the one man other than the king who befriended and protected her and was kind to her even though it's perfectly accurate to say she caused all of this. Always as kind as my own father, when the people hated her, you'd restrain them with words, Hector. You'd win them to my side. You with your gentle temper, your gentle words. And that's the end. They will have 12 days to hold a funeral, that's the ritual amount. And the last line of the Iliad ends with extraordinary quiet, like the closing of a Beethoven symphony on a very quiet note. And so the Trojans buried Hector, breaker of horses. Any number of scholarly commentators will tell you that it is remarkable that the enemy gets the last word, and a very noble word it is, in a heroic epic like this. That is the humanity of Homer. That is the humanity, despite the barbaric violence of the Iliad. And we will go on next time to the work of Milton. I hope you can join us. Mm -hmm.